Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Morning. Him We Proclaim. I invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Malachi. In your English Bibles there, it is the last book in the Old Testament right before you get to Matthew. Using the blue Bibles that have been provided for you, I believe it's on page 467 or thereabouts. So here it's recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. 
For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. With that, let's pray together. Lord, you have loved us. Please help us by the power of your spirit and through the preaching of your word now to become a people from now till each one of us go home to be with you. Make us a people who love you. Make us a people who long to worship you increasingly in spirit and in truth and to bring you glory in the world. And we do ask that you would get for yourself, great glory through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry if you're not a Marvel fan. I happen to be. And in 2012, the Avengers, previously isolated, scattered everywhere, famously assembled. Right? You can see them. You've seen the movie even now. The picture where it's like the, the panning around them, you know, and they're all just standing there ready to fight in New York City. They all assembled there to defend, in Thor's words, great philosopher, the world that they loved. In the aftermath of victory and debriefing with Nick Fury, the World Council rebuffs. Quote, we don't think you understand what you've started letting the Avengers loose on this world. They're dangerous. To which Fury replies, they surely are. And the whole world knows it. Every world knows it. And so they ask him, was that the point of all this? A statement to which Fury memorably closes a promise. The crossover is not absolute, but the idea that the devotion of an assembly to something bigger than themselves would prove the greatness of the thing itself to those beyond her borders, that's something that Malachi understands. And as we come to Malachi, there's something that you and I need to understand. God is all about making statements. 
But he's also made a promise that he fully intends to keep. If you run it all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, it finds this expression in Exodus chapter 9 and God's sovereign dealings. Maybe you remember this, his sovereign dealings with someone named Pharaoh is a title. He says this, For this purpose I have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And Malachi, as we get going here, he just echoes that. We're right here, we're on the cusp of divine silence, and he starts out like a firecracker, one firecracker with lots of pops, okay? You shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel, verse 5. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great. Among the nations, said twice in verse 11. And finally, into verse 14, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So that's the promise. He will be the desire of nations. But what if he's not the desire of his nation? Malachi's statement seems to be that in God's design, the devotion of his assembly matters. Our worship matters. Our love for him is a driving force that he's ordained for spreading his fame abroad throughout all the world. So how can that be fueled? How does God gas up what drives His glory throughout all the globe? Let's come to our text and first then, to the love of God for His people, stated and then magnified in verses 1 to 5. It should never get old to behold this oracle or twofold burden. Same thing here, oracle, burden, this burden of God to have us love Him as we ought to love Him by convincing us that He loves us as only He can. Just let that find an airstrip in your heart. I'll say it again in case you're ever wondering. The burden of the Word of the Lord is to assure us, I have loved. How does it land with you when you hear your dear spouse reaffirm their love for you? How does it land with you when as a dear parent, your dearly beloved children won't let you leave the house without reaffirming multiple times their quadruple love for you? How does it land with you as a child when your mother or father pull you in close And tell you afresh, I love you. How does it land with you when as one aspiring to be a great lover and greatly loved, you hear for the first time from that someone, I I don't just like you, I think I kind of love you. 
I remember when I told Jenny the first time that I loved her, just sort of slipped out, didn't really even mean to say it. And she was like, what? You know, (laughs) take it back. Sorry, too late. But now then, with what power should it land on our hearts to hear, I have loved you from God. Maybe we can pierce the shell if we consider this a last word before a lengthy deployment of sorts. Again, Malachi is essentially the last prophetic voice until we get to John the Baptist, and there's nearly five centuries between one and then the other. It's an awfully long silence for a people who are used to hearing fairly regularly from God. But what does God want them to take with them into that famine of the Word? Remember your first love, for God knows I have loved you. We are prone to forget or maybe misunderstand. We, like Israel, look around at our situations. We've known good times before, and these are not it. We maybe have known prosperity before, but this is not that. In fact, it's hard to imagine when things might have been worse sometimes. And when you get in that space, you can come to this place where you begin to question the love of God for you. We've forgotten what He's done for us. We have a divergent idea of what love has to look like. Surely, it cannot look like a cross here and a tomb there. It cannot look like a lost spouse at 36. It can't look like a lost child to miscarriage or whatever. It can't look like a lost child, a lost job. Maybe it's a lost relationship. Maybe it's a failed exam. It can't look like a lesser wage. It cannot look like a hard life. Without messengers like Malachi, without the Lord's own insistence in calling on our heart's attention, bitter providences can embitter our hearts to God. God comes to them and He says in verse 2, Believe it, I have loved you. And considering only their best life now, and the fact that whatever their life is at that moment is not that, they very much doubt it. They retort, how exactly have you loved us? And the Lord replies, never forget this, you could have been Esau. You go down the text, you could have been destined for ruins. You could have been abandoned to your own innate wickedness, the wicked country. You could have been left to merit God's anger, not just for a moment, but forever. Unceasing anger. Never forget, you could have been Esau. Now, we'll see that does not imply some unjust hatred of Esau on God's part. 
Nevertheless, to now magnify his love for Israel, God says, brothers as they were, Jacob and Esau, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And we're going to need to bear down there for a second. It is an historical example of what we might call his particular love for his elect. Go read Romans 9 this afternoon. Some of the things we're going to get into, they might break your mind. But, I think John Piper's right when he says, better your mind be broken than the Scriptures be broken. Beloved, Jacob and Esau weren't just brothers, they were twins. And when the maker of both of them could set this love, this particular love on both of them, he does not do that. He sets it on Jacob and not Esau. God, we know from 1 John, is love. We want to affirm that with all our hearts. God is love. But that does not mean that God is obligated to love every single person in the same way. His love here is what we might call elective or selective or just particular. Right? I would like to think that I love every single one of you out there this morning. I love every single one of you in a very real way. But I don't love you in the way that I love Jenny. My love for my bride is a discriminating love. It's particular in nature, following, I think, an aspect of God's love for His people. So one way to warm ourselves up to the fact that God has loved us is to reckon we might have been justly hated by God. Like Esau but we haven't been. Instead, God has loved us. He's loved us. But perhaps that only sort of singes the surface of our hearts. We are, after all, rather lovable, aren't we? It all makes sense, really. Esau was a devil, and Jacob was an angel. And thus Jacob God loved, while Esau he hated. The problem with that, whether you run all the way back to Genesis 25 or run all the way ahead to Romans chapter 9, is that God made His distinction before the twins were born. And then, as they lived, both of them, you know, both of them were basically devils for men. They were rebels by nature, both of them, at least initially. They were both worldly men. They were deceivers. They were liars. They were cheats. They were sexually immoral. They were all these things. And the point being, God did not set this love on Jacob as opposed to Esau because of any distinguishing awfulness in Esau or any distinguishing beauty in Jacob. In that sense, God's election is what we call unconditional. It's not conditioned on anything in you or in me. It's unconditional. It's 
owing strictly to the gracious will of God that we would be his own. Jacob and Esau were alike sinners meriting hell, but before they were born, or as Paul says, did anything good or bad, God chose Jacob and not Esau to be the object of his choicest love. And that is grace. And that grace is the entire basis for the eventual earthly and eternal difference between the two men. So, listen. When Jacob could have been hated justly, he wasn't. And when he could have been left to his sins and to himself, he wasn't. No, he was loved by God with a particularly gracious love. That co-eternal with God himself knew no beginning and will never know an end. Because he's so great, no, because this love of God is so great. And greater still, as indicated, it's effective. This love is effective. Was not Jacob changed? Did he not become Israel, as he's called in verse 1 of our text? Did God not wrangle that rebel, believes in Genesis 32, into blessed submission? Did he not show that sinner his saving face? I have seen the face of God. So by this love applied to Jacob, the cheat became a child of God. Jacob became a believer in the Messiah. He became an heir of the promise of grace. He became a godly man. He became a godly head for all God's people. And that reaches right into Malachi. What love was then evident in them being born Israelites instead of Edomites? Edom's Esau. To what people was Moses given? What about the law? What about David and his dynasty? What about the prophets? What of the promise of the gospel? What about the canon of revelation? What about these, this covenant or these covenants of grace? What about the Messiah? The Christ? What of God and His glory and His attendance to them and His long-suffering patience with them? What about his faithfulness? What about his direct intervention from the exodus to this exilic return to preserve them despite so many reasons throughout history to just pull the plug and start afresh with another people? To act as he did not for, but against Esau from Genesis to Malachi, as he says through verse 5, what about that? And while you should, rightly shed tears for Esau. Remember, Esau did not shed a single right tear over himself. Again, 
This was a man who was responsibly sexually immoral, plotting murder against his brother like Cain and Abel, hating God, despising that birthright, never repenting. It's a mystery. But don't get so caught up in Esau's lot that you miss God's love, which is the point of the passage. Neither man received injustice. Did you hear that? Neither man received injustice. God is not bound to love every sinner the same. To be fair, maybe we could say it's not entirely fair, but it's not Esau who's treated unfairly. Nor is it exactly Jacob who's treated unfairly. If anyone, the person who's treated unfairly is God in Christ. Esau only receives the sinner's wage. Justice. Not injustice. Justice. Jacob only receives the Savior's gift. Grace. And to that end, Jesus only received the sinner's wage in the place of his bride. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the world. That's not what he says. Maybe a sense in which that is true, but that's not what he says. As Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for everybody alike. No. But particularly for her, is what it says. And this is where I get to say that as you are in Christ, beloved, God has loved you. And don't you ever forget it. If you are a Christian, you are an heir of the purest concentration of this eternal, particular, gracious, efficacious, saving, helping, keeping love of God. That's why you love God. You wouldn't otherwise. But you do Because, as John says in 1 John, He first loved you like this and sent His Son to make it a no-doubter to be this concrete manifestation of His divine love for His people. While we were yet sinners, Jesus shed His blood Yes, to atone for us, to make atonement for our sins, but also to convince us, because we need it, to convince us and win us and keep us forever in the love of God. Are you owned by a true sense of that love? Do you not see the vital difference between yourself now and who you used to be? (laughs) Or yourself now and those that you hope to be saved? 
but aren't yet. And is that difference nothing except the power of sovereign grace? You could have been Esau, but you're in Jesus. You're a Christian. So you're alive from the dead, and your sins are forgiven, and you've been counted righteous. You are justified, and you've been made holy. You've been set apart to God, and you've been given everlasting peace with Him, a peace that will never end. You have been blessed by God and filled up with all the benefits that Christ has obtained for you by His blood. You have been loved by God. There's not a love like it in the world. God wants you to know it. He wants to convince you of it. That's His burden in the text. That you lay it to heart. I have loved you. You. So, let's talk about worship. And tragedy. How though he had loved them, they had not loved him. And so in verse 6 and onward then, we need to consider the lovelessness of this people for God, clarified and then reproved. Okay, so beloved, there is a connection. We need to understand this. There is a connection between our faith in God's love, convinced, and our faithfulness in worship. He has loved us, as in the text, to make us lovers of God, contrary to what we're now seeing in the text. God is adamant that His people worship Him in spirit and in truth. But to the degree that we cool to His love, to that very degree will our love be likely to grow cold and go frozen to all the overtures of His bleeding heart. And these verses then amount to the look, the appearance of a love that has lost touch or never known the love of God that Jacob came to know. And the first sight of their lovelessness concerns the altar. You see it throughout the verses there. The altar was this place that was set aside for those sacrifices that at that time at least maintained and developed and repaired their relationship with God. It was a place where they cast their crowns. Man, I got this great sheep. It's the greatest sheep that's ever existed in the history of mankind. They took those crowns and they laid them at the feet of God. And it proved He is worthy. It proved their desire to know His worth and to honor it. But the problem in most of the passage is that they don't give Him His glory. They don't give Him His glory. They worship Him as they might worship a pauper, which isn't worthy to be called worship at all. Though He's their Father and Master, Savior and Lord, as it says, this greatest King, they have cheapened His altar. We can't miss the play on words there in verse 7. God says they have despised Him by polluting His altar. They get it. 
To pollute God's altar is to pollute God. What they gave there reflected, this is what I think of you, God. The expense of their offerings reflected their heart's valuation of God. And to be clear, as we learn from Jesus, the issue is the heart there. When the Pharisees go to the Gospels, Pharisees giving large sums of money was indistinct from this Israel right here giving their least. In both instances, the glory of God was nowhere central to their heart. The sacrifices that they made were about their own self-centered benefits and advantages. What can I keep for myself? What can I get away with giving? That's why Jesus highlights the poor widow who though she gave next to nothing in worldly value, gave all she had. And that reflected, God is worth everything. A hundred percent of my heart. She loved God more than all. But these here, you see, verse 8, what do they give? They give animals that are blind and lame and sick. You go to verses 13 and 14, you find there that they gave what they had stolen. So instead of giving sin offerings, offerings for sin, they gave offerings of sin. They gave as cursed people give. Their yes to God was no in practice. They vowed their best. They promised Him their love. Oh God, I love you. But for their own godless gain, they cheated on Him. What they wouldn't give to their governor, pauper as he would have been in comparison with any other king in the world, they offer freely to the greatest king of all as if it was good enough. And God, let us hear this now, Because this is true, not only in Malachi, but right now, this is true. God, knowing the condition of our worship, is not bashful about calling such worship as theirs was evil. You ever put those two words together? Evil. Worship. Evil worship is religious practice that ignorant of the worth of God neglects both the worth of God and the word of God which dictates it. Folks who go around the Bible in conducting their church's worship are telling you, they're telling you they do not value God very highly at all. When people tell you exactly who they are, you should believe them. What do blind, lame, and sick offerings offered in sin say to you? It says that the hearts of the worshipers are blind, lame, sick, and in the grip of sin. 
It says they can't see the love of God. They're blind. Nor can they rise to meet it. They're lame, sick. Nor do they desire to meet it, even if they could. They're in the grip of sin. And God says in this passage that clergy and congregation are complicit in this. You see, verse 6, the address is actually made to whom? The priests. In accepting unacceptable offerings, the people were happy to give them. In okaying or justifying their least to God's defamation, the people felt justified in giving that, their least. In lowering scriptural standards of worship worthy of God, Israel was like, great, we'll go slumming. I trust you see then why we try to place a premium not on relaxing biblical standards of devotion and responsibility and accountability and membership, but on meeting them by God's help from the heart. Beloved, the no commitment stuff that you see all over today in the churches, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. How does that go hand in hand with the perfect lover of God whose entire existence on earth was a covenant? To do what was necessary to save his people from their sins. His whole existence was to sacrifice, not to not sacrifice, but to sacrifice himself, his whole being, to bring a fuller form of true worship where you and I exist as living sacrifices to God. Dear ones, God is worthy. Just, let's just think on this. God is worthy of nothing less than Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood and righteousness. The great altar is not this. It's not the front of the sanctuary. It's the cross upon which the Prince of Glory died. Are we cheapening that? You say, how might we cheapen it? How might we cheapen the cross of Christ? How about assembling like this without dealing with our sinning? How about making promises to God that we really never intended to keep? 
How about staying up far too late and getting up far too late and coming here cold? How about believing that God has no standards for worship? It is what it is. And He's just happy we're here at all. And He should be. Because we are great. How about verse 9? Praying that He would bless not our holiness, but our worldliness. That He would smile down upon our frowns upward. How about doing more to please a stinking human being? We fear man in whose nostrils is breath, and only breath. And we do more for them to please them than we do to please our living, indestructible Lord and Savior. How about growing content with giving our least? How about accepting the bare minimum? What can I get away with? How about not challenging cheap grace? He's not worthy. How about giving God the scraps of our souls? How about not caring enough to put a stop to evil worship? Do you see next in the text how lovelessness is manifest? How God is further despised and defamed. It's that when someone, God loved them, when someone would, verse 10, shut the doors and bolt them. When like Luther, they would challenge the unbiblical status quo. They shut the doors and they nailed the spirit of biblical reformation to it. They are either hated or branded a bother. And I can't tell you how much it breaks my heart to have seen that far too often in so many churches. Men and women, brothers and sisters, pouring their hearts out for God. His love coursing through their spiritual veins. And they're just saying, back to the Bible. (laughs) See the text. This is best. Let's remember our first love. Let's worship again in spirit and in truth. Let's honor God and be a church that magnifies the glory of God and His love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the response is, verse 13, what a weariness this is. Oh my. And they snort at it. I was at a wedding recently, and the brother who was officiating was telescoping on the gospel, right? Not microscoping, telescoping, taking something really big and bringing it near so everybody could see. And the lady right next to me, you didn't know who I was, why would she, rolls her eyes and says, at the height of Christ and Him crucified, Oh, come on. 
It was in the 15th minute. Not hour. The 15th minute that she wearied of it. She all but snorted at a glory that you and I were made by God to see and to love and to plead more. (laughs) For the love of God, don't stop. Give us more. Feed us. Give us the glory of Christ. There's no way to verify it, but she very well might have gone to church the next day. Regardless, that heart is in churches. God help it not to be in our church in any way that can't ultimately be remedied. You know who finds biblical reform and standards for worship a wearisome thing? Souls that have long become rigid for lack of exercise in those things. And where evil worship, where evil worship has become acceptable worship. We've lost touch with love of God. Let me explain the tragedy, how it happens, if I can. Somewhere, people lose touch with the love of God. That's the thing. That's the main thing. They lose touch with, I have loved you. And so their love for God goes cold. The things of worship are no longer a delight to them as they used to be. Instead of being a delight, they become a drudgery. And they go on in that drudgery until upholding the worth of God by bending to His Word and bowing to His Spirit becomes a snorting sort of weariness. It's just not worth it anymore to right the ship sinking as it is. But we can't shut the doors. We can't not appear to worship. So, I have an idea. Let's just relax the standards. Let's demand less of people. Let's cheapen grace. Let's pollute the altar. Let's okay or even defend Blindness and sickness and sinfulness. Let's hide from souls the full light of the overflowing love of the flawless Christ. The very thing that would awaken love and turn it all around in a way that gives God glory in the world. 
but ignorant of Satan's schemes at that point. No, let's just go on and make it all light and exciting and fun. Forget Spurgeon's words. How the man who is all aglow with love to Jesus finds little need for amusement. No time for trifles when he's in dead earnest to save souls and to establish truth and to enlarge the kingdom of his Lord thereby. No. We're too busy inventing ways to cover up the stench of deadly pollution. That's how it happens. And souls are dying there. You say, Brian, aren't we supposed to be a hospital for the sick? Amen. And it'll be very hard for the blind to see and the sick to gain health and the lame to walk upright and the sinning to be saved and or sanctified among loveless Israels who say, you know, you're good as you are. Churches who contrary to the heart of Jesus, see no need to restore sight, heal the sick, strengthen the lame, strengthen them. And in that way, love the sinner to the greatness of grace and of God. A priesthood pursuing health will be of surest help to needy souls. Which brings us to this. It matters, it matters, it matters that biblical worship with its Christ center, its gospel center, it matters that that matters with us. Beloved, as we put all the pieces together, God has purposed to be great among the nations. Not pitiful. Not a pauper. Great. And our worship is an indispensable part of that. This is John Piper once said, worship is both the fuel and the goal of what? Missions. Worship is both the fuel and the goal for missions. What we've assembled to do here is not in the least insignificant to the fame of God outside these walls. It's critical. Our love for God is vital to His fame going viral. And thus, we have no greater need than hearing repeatedly from God, I have loved you, see the cross. Missions lives as we live. And as churches live on the love of God in Jesus Christ. How from all eternity 
he knowing the full number, full well of what our sins would be, chose us to be the heirs, not of His justice, but of His Son and of His grace to be His beloved bride forever and ever. Amen. My friend, there is an altar upon which God made a sacrifice for sinners as you are. When Jesus laid down His life on the cross, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, not just of men, but the Lamb of God was slain that you, whether you are Jacob or Esau, might be saved from your sins and filled from head to toe throughout your heart with the love of God. Even Edomites, if you go to Amos chapter 9, by the way, even Edomites, some of them are included in the saved of God. Won't you be? Then turn this morning. Believe on Christ. Love Him. Beloved, God has loved you. See from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life. My all. Oh, to be a people who can't see that and hear that and then be content to offer less than the songwriter resolves. One wants to find Christian biography as, quote, the battle story. You go back to the Avengers. Sorry. The battle story of those who in the conflict of earth have been great in the life of God. And we might refine it after this morning, great in the love of God. So when we say, Christians, assemble, nothing? Okay. Will an assembly be found whose love for God proves the greatness of God Himself to those who very much doubt it? He's made a promise. He will be great beyond our borders. He will be the desire of nations. Go read Revelation 7. Add that to Romans 9 this afternoon. And He has purposed 
that that should start with you and me and us as a worshiping church. So are we a grateful people for grace? Are we holy? Are we sacrificial? Are we teachable? Are we prayerful? Are we devoted? Do we love the Word of God? Do we love the Gospel of Christ? Do we love the church? Do we love our triune God? Are we in love with His glory? Let His fame go far and wide and everywhere. You need kindling for that. He gives it. I have loved you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and how we do pray that it would change us, reform us, make us like Jesus, give us a love for him that really does reflect how glorious you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.